0: Not really a scripture to open up to at this point. We're going to be all over the place. We'll eventually get into the book of Malachi, but that'll be a little while before we, uh, before we get there. We are once again diving back into the attributes of God. Who is God? What is He like? What does that matter to us to know what God is like fundamental questions that are for us, as we've uh, talked about a lot over the last few weeks, the most important questions for us to answer in our lives. Questions that will ultimately shape everything about us. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or not a Christian, whether you consider yourself uh, even to be an atheist, your view of who God is or whether God even exists will shape who you are and who you become. And so us here as Christians believe that we need to get our view of who, of who God is right so that our, uh, the, the outcome of our life will then be impacted in the way that that character then demands. So these are fundamental questions about how we live life by first determining who God is. And so far, we've been covering the incommunicable attributes of God, the ones that He does not share with us, the ones that He does not share with anyone. He cannot share them with anyone because if anyone else were to hold these same attributes, then they would have the claim to be God. There is only one that is self existent, all powerful, all knowing, present everywhere. If someone else were to share these, then they would be a rival to God. But He has no rivals. These are His alone to claim. So let's recap what we've covered so far. I named a couple of them there. We've covered His majesty, His simplicity, that God is whole, not in parts. He is all of His attributes all the time. His aseity, His self-existence, His self-sufficiency, his omniscience that He knows everything, His omnipresent that, presence that He is everywhere, and His omnipotence that He is all powerful. And then this morning we'll introduce our next attribute about God, that He is immutable. Immutable. That doesn't have anything to do with like the mute button to like stop sound. It has to do with the the idea that God does not change. God does not change. He does not, will not, indeed He cannot change. This is a glorious truth that has massive impacts on our ability to know Him, to rely on Him. It impacts how we read Scripture, and it will impact how you walk out this door this morning. And it is something that is completely foreign to us. Even though this is one that I think we can wrap our minds around a little bit, because we see so much change in our world and in ourselves, the idea that something is constant, I, I think we think we can wrap our mind around some of this. But honestly, there is nothing that we can really compare this idea to, that he does not change. It's completely foreign to us. And in fact, in many cases, this is something that is the opposite of what many see God should be doing. Not only does He not change, many people think that God should be changing. Last weekend, I'll explain that here in just a few minutes. Last weekend, we celebrated the 4th of July. Many of you, uh, judging by uh, the view from my uh, driveway uh, in in Dumplin Valley, many of you all went full redneck and shot off fireworks like I did. Uh, You shot all that stuff off. There were fireworks everywhere late into the night to every mother's uh, chagrin. You wore your red, white, and blue. You drove your four-wheelers in the parade. You listened to patriotic music. And I'm betting maybe one or two of you may have done some history work to remind yourself or your family of the reason that we celebrate the 4th of July in the first place. Some of you may have done some light reading and busted out the Constitution to the United States of America. And if you had done that, this is what you would have read at the very beginning. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. If my eighth grade teacher were still alive, he would be very disappointed that I had to read that, and I did not have that memorized. But these are words that have been memorized for speeches and delivered by middle schoolers and have been poured over in papers written by scholars. They have been inscribed in monuments. They have been uh, read as a symbol of all that is good about this country that we live in. They are words often quoted and immortalized as being the, the, the opening to the single most important document written in the last 300 years. And they are also words that have come under fire since the very first days that they were written. In the first sentence, the declaration of the intent of the Constitution is given to us. Now hang with me on this. I know this is a bit of a history lesson, but just hang with me on this. I'm going somewhere with it. The declaration of the intent of the Constitution is given to us, and it begins by saying that it is in order to form a more perfect union. Now that is a quote that is often taken out of context by scholars and politicians and used as some powerful uh, rhetoric, but it's often taken out of context. The word perfect there is not intended to represent what we would deem perfect as in the sense of without error. The word perfect there is really used more of a sense that it was used in the 1700s, which really just means complete, finished. Doesn't necessarily mean without error, but complete or finished. So the words here mean that in order for us to have a more complete or finished nation, here is this constitution that moves us from uh, an idea of a nation to the real thing. In order to be a finished revolution, we need a constitution. So here it is. That's basically what that is saying there. But today, that term, more perfect union, has taken a a more modern day rendering uh, of the word perfect It is often mocked in, that idea is often mocked in the discussions of the day, especially the conversations around race and all that is happening in our country uh, right now as you look at those that have endured injustice and the harsh reality of life in this country since those words uh, were written. It is often said that perhaps this union is more perfect for some than it is for others. For many reasons that is undoubtedly true. We are not a perfect nation, let alone a more perfect nation. And while there are many suggestions that people have offered uh, in this day, the overwhelming story of America is that we are always striving to be a more perfect union. That somehow tomorrow we would be a little bit better than we were yesterday. That we might evolve from a nation that is more perfect than other nations to... uh, perhaps be a, a little bit more perfect than we were even yesterday. We must evolve, adapt, constantly change if we are to truly become what our forefathers set us out to be. We must always, as a nation, be becoming more perfect. That kind of language is, of course, in and of itself, an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. Something can't be more perfect. Perfect is the, the height of something. It can't be more than that. And yet, that, 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 that language kind of works for us. We understand the idea that is being described there. Maybe it works for a nation. Maybe it even works for a relationship. This is what many grooms and brides promise to each other at the altar on their wedding day. Some of you guys may have shared some of these sentiments as well. They're already perfect together, but if they would just say, I do, in front of their friends and family, they will become even more perfect. Isn't that lovely? You spend about five minutes with me in premarital counseling, and I will shut that nonsense down very quickly. Uh, But nonetheless, this is what many couples are shooting for when they get married, simply to be more perfect together. It's also the kind of language that is often applied to religion. President Obama often spoke to condemn the killings and the violence of uh, of ISIS, not on the grounds that they were evil. He actually went out of his way to avoid that term, but instead because they were simply unevolved in their thinking and their practice. He said, and I quote, people like ISIS ultimately fail. They fail because the future is won by those who build and not destroy. So President Obama's appeal to fight and push against ISIS is not based on the universal grounds of their evil, but on the hope of the more evolved side winning because the evolved side has better goals, better morality, and is more noble. They're simply further along in their thinking and their vision. It is not an absolute of good versus evil. It is It is. Base and, and and kind of backwards versus evolved and sophisticated. Many philosophers today—if any of you guys have heard of names like Deepak Chopra or Robert Wright—these are people that are seen as spiritual gurus, oftentimes, or uh, as as uh, uh, perfect commentators on the the social way that the that God and religion works. These guys would say that God Himself also evolves as our concept of God evolves. So God changes as we change. As we grow and become more moral, God grows more moral as well. And so for them, God is found in our perception of Him rather than an objective reality for us to know better. So as you can see, this is the language that kind of works itself in constantly. That the pinnacle of what it means to be moral and, be, and good and for your religion to be uh, on the top of things is the, the religion or the God who has most evolved along with our thinking. Why is all this important? Because the world will do all they can to convince you that God is nothing more than your perception of Him. And that perception is always changing, always moving, and completely at the whim of emotion, history, cultural trends, and ethical debates. But this could not be further from the Bible's view of God. Listen to the psalmist here and see if what he describes is a flexible, morally changing, always moving God. Psalm 18, verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Psalm 62 verse 5, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence for my hope is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Do you hear the hope that David has when he writes this? Do you hear the hope of the psalmist? Where does his hope lie? Is it in the fact that God has become something great as his understanding of God has changed? Has God evolved along with him? And is that where David finds his hope? No, not at all. Is his hope that the that that, that, that psalmist has watched God grow in strength and in stature and ability? Is it that the psalmist has watched God grow as God has learned and grown in his ethics and his morality? What is it that gives the psalmist hope? Is it not, when you read this, the fact that he knows, he knows that God will always be there? When he calls, that he knows that when he runs into the rock to take refuge, he will then find that rock. It will not be something that has moved. Why is it that David can say, I will not be shaken? It's because he knows that God cannot be shaken. God is rock solid. It is that certainty that then gives David the same certainty Not because David is strong, but because God is a rock. You see this uh, over 30 times in the Psalms alone, referring to God as our rock. He does not trust God because God is always changing. He trusts God because God doesn't change at all. There's an old saying that you can never step into the same river twice. It means that the, that life keeps moving and that you're never the same person whenever you step into the water. And even if you were the same person, that water that you stepped into before is now long gone. Things are always changing, even if they look the same. Last weekend, we were with Emily's family in Townsend. They've got a little place that's there uh, just about 100 yards from the river that runs there along the side of the road in Townsend. And... Uh, we'll walk down there to this this river and, and skip rocks and stick our feet in and relax just a little bit. Um, you can see kind of a picture of it. That looks way like scarier than it actually is um, because you can see the, the white water there. But if you look just to your right from that, it's much more calm. It's really not as wild looking as that is. It's just a very little peaceful thing. So we go down here. We'll skip rocks. We relax. We we'll let the dogs play in the water uh, and do that that kind of thing and Last week, whenever we got down there, uh, we got down to the the, the river uh, and there was a guy sitting in the middle of the river. Uh, Again, you can see it's a little bit calmer there, but just to the right there of what you can see, there was a guy sitting in the river and he was sitting there casting a a fishing rod over by the bank on the other side of the the river. He was just sitting on a rock right in the the middle uh, of the river and there wasn't many rapids around him. It was pretty uh, simple and so we told the kids, hey... You're going to have to wait a few minutes. That's where they like to play because it's a little bit calmer there. Let's just go over here and we'll, we'll, we'll do whatever we can. And we said, just stay away from them. Don't, don't disturb this guy that is fishing. After about 10 to 15 minutes, uh, some kayakers and some tubers started coming down the river. And this guy decided, you know, maybe it's time for me to just put the rod up and I will move uh, along and my father-in-law made some comment about hoping that we weren't disturbing him as he was out fishing we didn't mean to come down and uh, interrupting and he said no no no, you weren't bothering me i've been just sitting on that rock for the last hour i haven't caught anything Uh, really it's just an excuse to come out here and sit on that rock and then he said he'd been coming to that river for over 30 years and sitting on that same rock for over 30 years he would come, and, and, and his family had a house right there, and he would come, and he would sit on that same rock, and he would, he would fish or he would do other things, but he'd been coming and sitting there on that same place. It's just kind of a place for him that was a place that was uh, a, a place of rest and relaxation, And he always knows that rock is going to be right there for him to come and sit on. That river may always be changing, but that rock had not gone anywhere. He knows that next year on the 4th of July, he can walk out on that river. And at this point, after 30 years, he could probably walk out there blindfolded and find exactly where he needs to be, sit down, and start casting that fishing rod. He knows that rock is going to be there because it has not changed. Now we know over the course of 30 years, maybe that rock is, is, is slightly smaller due to some erosion and the, the, the water running over it. But, but generally, that rock is right there and has not changed for him. That rock is a place of comfort and security for him. Listen to how God describes himself through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? and you are my witnesses is there a god besides me there is no rock i know not any god's supremacy is on display and god isn't afraid to show it what is it that sets god apart he's powerful yes but he is the the first and the last there is no one that rivals Him because He is all there is to know and see. He, doesn't, he, he, he says, don't be afraid. I am the rock and there is nobody else that you can run to like Me. There is no one else you can go to to find that security like Me. If you run to anyone else, they won't be there anymore because they will have changed. But you can run to Me because I have never changed. I am the rock. There is no other. And this is the doctrine of immutability. God does not change. He does not evolve. He does not grow in His perfection. He is unlike our relationships or our country. He is not becoming more perfect. He is already perfect. There is no higher mark for him to achieve. He does not and he cannot change. Think about it. If he changes, then what was he before he changed? Or what was he after he changed? Either he wasn't perfect then, before he changed. Or he isn't perfect now. One or the other. If He changes, then that means that there either was or there is some imperfection in Him that needs to grow and change. There is a higher mark of perfection that is available to Him. So if He changes, what was He before? And the answer is, not God. But He does not change. Listen again to the overwhelming testimony of Scripture. Go to the New Testament now. James chapter 1, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Hebrews 13, 8, and 9. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Do you see that there that both of those passages, it, it, it ties the unchanging nature of who God is, of who Jesus is. It ties that to, uh, kind of contrasting that to like deceptive teaching. Do you see that there in, in James and in Hebrews? He, James 1.16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And then in Hebrews 13 and 18, it says, Do not be led away by, or 13, 8 and 9, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. In both of those verses, God's unchanging nature is set against the deception of the world and this idea of strange teachings that will follow when their conception of God is one that is always changing. So long as the idea of who God is and your conception of who God is is always changing, deceptive teachings will follow. Because as long as you have a God who changes, then you can dictate how He changes based off of whatever you want to throw out there. This is how the culture shifts things right underneath our feet in the church so often. So long as God is always changing, so too His Word is reduced to nothing more than a historical note of who He was then. You see, the Bible gets completely uh, undercut whenever you say that God is changing. Because then what you can say is, I understand that's what the writer of James said. I understand that that's what the psalmist said then. But that's just a historical note of who God was Then. He's changed now. He's different now. And at that point, Scripture just becomes an archaic document that's a historical artifact about who God was, not who God is. Do you see how this doctrine helps undergird our faith and our trust in Scripture? This is the type of thing that is often cited in uh, the debate today over. All kinds of different things, but we can just take one with homosexuality is still considered a sin by the writers of the New Testament but the argument goes that that there's a trajectory that Scripture is on and that God is on from the time of the New Testament to now. And if we follow that trajectory, then what we can say is that, yes, it may have been sinful then, but surely if God were to rewrite the New Testament today, it would not be a sin now. And we determine sin based off of an imagined trajectory of where we think God would be were He to continue evolving. And Scripture then no longer becomes an authority, but it becomes kind of a a launching pad for us to determine what we think is right and what we think is wrong. If you don't like something Scripture says, then make it a historical point that God surely wouldn't say today if He were to rewrite Scripture. Surely he would have evolved on these issues by now. Name your sin, name your cultural soapbox, and then follow a God that evolves right alongside the rest of the culture. Friends, if your God constantly evolves with your culture, then you can be sure that your culture is your God. Again, let's go back to the Old Testament for a beautiful picture of hope. Rooted in God's unchanging nature. This is Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. This is the last book of the Old Testament. Right before you get to the New Testament in Matthew. Verse 6. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6. For I the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now... That's a verse that's quoted a lot. But why is it that they are not consumed? What does the fact that God doesn't change have to do with the fact that they receive mercy? I I get it if you were to say, for I am the Lord and I am full of mercy, therefore you are not consumed. But he says, for I the Lord do not change, therefore children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Therefore, you have hope. How do those things work together? Let's keep reading in verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. This is the theme of the book of Malachi, over and over and over. God is just laying out indictments on the people of Israel. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? He says, in your tithes, in your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now these verses are the ones that the pastor normally breaks out when it's time for a stewardship series and budget is getting tight. This is what we go to in Malachi chapter 3. It's the only reason any pastor ever reads Malachi chapter 3, because we need more money. Because you're going to talk about tithing, and it's like, just give us more money and see how much God will bless you. That's what it says right here. But really, that's pretty well taken out of uh, context. The point being made by the Lord here through Malachi is this I don't change. You don't believe me? Go back and do the things that I commanded you to do before. Go back and fix all this nonsense that you've been offending me with. Go back and and look at the offerings that you've been giving and go back to the offerings I commanded you to give. Go back and quit robbing me with these half-hearted worship offerings and instead, worship me with all that you are. And once you do that, see if I don't do exactly what I promised you I would do. I don't change. And in that, you can find hope. Because if I did change, your sinful, pitiful worship surely wouldn't have been enough to stop me from rejecting you and walk away. But I will not walk away from you. And do you know why I will not walk away from you? Because I do not change. Because I am faithful. Why? Because that's who I am. This is God's point through Malachi. I don't change. As Paul writes to Timothy, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. That's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. God remains faithful. Why? Not primarily because of the promise that He has made, though He is faithful to those promises, but just as Chanda said earlier, He remains faithful because that is who He is. And He cannot change. He will not change. What a beautiful hope we have in that. God's ability to hold on to us is not based on our ability to hold on to Him. He keeps us because He has promised He will do it. And He will not let go because He will not change His mind. Because He does not change. We may be a fickle people, but He is not a fickle God. Not because we deserve it, but because that is who He is. And because He is who He is, we can have a confidence that is unmatched, Versus anything else this world has to offer. Because everything else this world has to offer changes. Everything. We cannot escape change. Now, maybe we feel that more acutely right now in this world because it feels like. Everything has changed us. I've read several articles talking about how this pandemic, instead of pushing pause on change, has instead accelerated change. And we've seen over the last six months, things that would normally take 20 or 30 years have gotten the fast forward button and have changed within six months because of whatever happened in this kind of suspended time that we've been in uh, as we've kind of shut things down. And so we can see acutely, perhaps more than any of us ever have in our lifetimes, that things are always changing. And sometimes they are changing and evolving for the good, and sometimes they are not. But they are always changing. We don't want a God that evolves. What if this God evolves to a more moral place that somehow determines that we aren't worth saving and he wants his glory to be put on his display in some other way because he looked at us and he said, you know what, I could have done better with this. I have other ways that my glory could be put on display. Look at what I'm going to do. I'm going to put planets all over the place again and I'm just going to be like, poof, there they are, and that will glorify me. I don't need to save these sinners to be glorified anymore. We don't want a God that changes in that way. We want a God that stays the same and is true to the promises that he made all the way back to Abraham and to Noah and to Isaac and to Jacob. We want a God that we can rely on and that we can know has always been the same. God will never move beyond His promises because His promises were made out of His nature. And it doesn't change. But you need to hear me as well this morning. These promises are only true for those that are His. Those that are kept securely in His hand. Those that have put their faith in Him and His unfailing promises and in their redemption through Jesus. Apart from Jesus, God is still immutable. He still doesn't change. And for the person who is apart from God, this is not good news. You see, so often the prayer of many would be that maybe God would let things slide just once. That maybe when they got to the end of their lives, whether that be tomorrow or that be 40 years from now, that perhaps God would say, you know what? For you, I'm going to change the standard just a little bit because I like you. And I think you were a good guy. And I think you tried really hard. So I'm going to adjust the standard. I'm going to change just this one time. There are millions of people that are banking that God will change in that day. But He will not change. They're banking that God might let them off for good behavior. That God might let you slide for good church attendance or tithe given or good deeds done or selfless service to others. But God's word is clear. Listen to John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What a great promise to claim because it never changes. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. What a great promise to claim because it never changes. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Friends, that truth does not change either. We love to quote 16 and 17 and claim the, 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 the beauty of those verses because they do not change. But verse 18 is just as unchanging. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The salvation achieved and accomplished by Jesus is forever. And it does not change. But the condemnation laid out by Jesus, apart from Him, is a promise that you must reckon with also. Because it will not change. Not for you and not for anyone apart from Christ. Friends, this is why we must tell others about the good news of Jesus. About the hope of salvation. That does not change. This is what should spur us to evangelism. This is what should spur us to be missionaries. This is what should send us into the dangerous places. Because we cannot hope that God will just relent and, and, and not follow through. Because He will not change. On that we can be sure. Repentance is the necessary condition of our surrender to Jesus and being born again. Repentance, the turning away from sin that you currently willfully indulge in. Apart from Christ, you are in sin and you must turn and repent from that. You say, but how? This is who I am. This is what I am. To put it in our language that we use today, I was born this way. I don't know any other way to be. I don't think Jesus is right for me because I cannot change the person that I am. And so, if that is sin, then so be it because I am stuck being the person that I am. Repentance is too much to ask. I can't change. Friends, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, and you have not come to Christ, do not buy that lie. If you are watching online and that describes you, that you feel like you cannot change, you cannot, you cannot repent and turn from sin because it is so much a part of who you are, do not buy that lie. Listen to this quote from Jen Wilkin. It's too, it's too good not to quote in its entirety, so listen closely just as my assurance of salvation rests in the fact that god cannot change my hope of sanctification becoming more like christ rests in that fact that i can what greater disavowal of the gospel of grace and the claim it is capable of changing every sinner's heart but mine what greater egotism no doubt as unbelievers we feel the hopelessness of our plight apart from grace. We rightly surmise that without an intervening miracle, we cannot change for the better. But when the miracle of grace has been applied to our hearts, change becomes gloriously possible. The unchanging one dispels forever the myth of human immutability. Changing a heart that was once a Once stone to a heart of flesh, changing desires that once sought only to glorify self to those that seek to glorify him. That is a beautiful promise. That we are not just stuck being who we were or who we are. We are not just stuck in our sin as though that has defined us from the from eternity past to eternity in the future. We are not not condemned to a sentence of, that is just who you are. Because we can change on our own? No. We are indeed hopeless, or as the Bible describes us, we are dead in our transgressions. But the promise of a new life, that we are born again, is the promise that we are not immutable. We can change but only only when we know the true power of grace and when we run to the rock who does not change. You can change. Not on your own, but that is the power of grace. Not only does it give you freedom from your condemnation, it also sets you free from your own slavery to your sin. Your salvation is at hand. Come to Christ and be changed by the one who never changes. This morning, I don't know where you are in your walk with Jesus. Maybe you are far from him or maybe you are clinging to that rock with all you got. But what I can tell you is that rock doesn't change. He's not going anywhere. And you can hold on and claim it, run to it, run into it as your fortress, as your stronghold, as your salvation. But you are not reduced to being stuck forever. Because in God's mercy... He will and He does change you. Perhaps slowly, perhaps painfully slowly, but He will change you until one day when we are glorified and we are made to truly know Him. And then we will be changed in His presence for eternity. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you this morning that we are a people who can change by your grace. That we are not locked into a life of sin. That we are not locked into being defined by our our sin. Father, in in a world that is full of chaos, in a world that tells us that you change all the time, so that we can't even begin to fully know who You are. Thank You for Your Word that tells us You never change. And we can rely on that Word, and we can rely on the work of the Spirit to apply that Word, and we can know that the same God that You were to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same God that You were to Malachi, malachi and jeremiah the same god that you were to matthew and mark the same god that you were to paul and to james the same god that you were to john whenever you stood in front of him and told him to write about the revelation the the, the same god in all of scripture is the same god that we bow before today and we worship Father, we thank you that we can know you because you have never changed. And that we can have an unshakable confidence. That we can build our lives upon the rock. And I should pray that you would help us to do that this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.